Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. More than ever, we are connected. We live in an age and a time when connectivity is vast, where technology has allowed us to connect with others across the globe in a multitude of different ways, and yet at the same time that we are more connected than ever, studies are continuing to show that in reality, relationally speaking, we are more disconnected than ever. The same technology that allows us to initiate and maintain to some degree relationships in some sense is also responsible for shattering or providing superficial and disconnected relationships. Today, you may have thousands of friends on Facebook, but have no real friends on your own street. You may, through different platforms of social media, offer a portrait of yourself and your life so that others think they know you, but in reality, they see only a polished veneer that conceals the real you. We see all around us even in the technology that so many of us use on a daily basis, a deep longing for community. But we seem to have misused or missed really the true essence of community. And in fact, the facade that we have often created to establish community is the very thing that is actually destroying our ability to enjoy true community. And that is in many ways what life is like under the sun. That's what Solomon describes life like apart from God, living this life as if God was removed from the equation, living this life as if you were the ruler and the king of creation, living this life as if this life in this world was all there was. You see, our problem with community is that we long for it under the sun, but if we stay only under the sun and search for it, we find only emptiness a shadow of what we're intended to truly experience. That's what Solomon has been trying to do in our hearts throughout this entire book of Ecclesiastes, to rip the veil back, to expose the facades, the shams that are presented to us from the worldly perspective and to bring us into true reality, what God has called us to know and understand. And here he does just that when it comes to community in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let's read together. Let's begin at verse 4. He says these words, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth 
than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This passage speaks of a lot of different things, but at its heart we see this passage connecting us to the reality of community and a call to really enjoy true community as opposed to the false community that so many of us are settling for in this world in many ways apart from God. You see, we were created for community, and if we are to enjoy true community, we must do three things. The first is this, we must flee the sinful destroyer of community. We have to be resolved to flee the sin in our lives that end up destroying true community. And here, in the first couple of verses, the preacher, or Solomon as we believe him to be, points out what really is at the heart of many relationships and what ends up driving relationships, but also destroying relationships. Notice what he says. Again, we'll look at verse 4 here. He says this. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from, notice this, a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, he's talked a lot about work already. He's talked a lot about motivations for work and acquiring possessions because of our work, trying to find our identity and joy and purpose and meaning in work. But here, he really goes hard after the motive behind what most people work for, why they're working. And he boils it down to this idea of envy. You'll notice the word I chose to put on the screen there is covetousness, and really envy and covetousness and jealousy, they're all members of the same family. They all deal with the same fundamental issues. The idea of covetousness or, or envy is looking at what somebody else has and yearning or desiring it. It's a longing to have what you do not and what someone else does. You say, wait, is, is envy or covetousness, is, is that really that bad? I mean, if, if we just kind of understand what a lot of economists say, sometimes economists identify the competitive urge of self-interest as the engine that drives a capitalist economy. They say envy is actually a good thing. It pushes us forward. It, it causes productivity. It forces people to go beyond what they thought capable of. But Ecclesiastes sees this not as being something that is inherently good, but something that is deeply problematic, and it identifies this as the deeper motivation in our hearts for working, a motivation that comes from a selfish heart. Certainly, people work for a variety of different reasons. We work to provide, we work to, uh, for, to establish and to understand our even God-given identity, understanding that work is not inherently bad, but was created as good and is mandated by God even before the fall. But in a sinful fallen world, under the sun, one of the dominating reasons we work, and listen, let me qualify this, we work so hard is because we are driven by envy and covetousness. We long for more. We long for what others have. Don't miss that vital point. Lots of reasons we work, but one of the reasons we work so hard, sadly, so often, is because our sinful hearts long for what they do not have 
and what others do. Envy and covetousness are often linked with status and identity. You see, what we have or what we long for, what we can present reveals what we truly value. The thing you long for and desire most, maybe for you it's beauty. You look at somebody else's beauty and and you long to have that. Maybe it's skill. You look at somebody who's excelling in their career or excels in things like athletics and, and, and you envy that or whatever it is for you. Maybe it's power or reputation. Maybe it's wealth and possessions. And when we see someone who is praised for those things or somebody who appears to have what we believe we should have, it produces a sinful response within us. Isn't this true in our hearts? When we look at somebody, listen, when we look at somebody that has something we want, usually the default reaction isn't, man, I'm so happy for you. It's usually in our hearts that we're saying, wow, that's so awesome. We're kind of like, wait a second, why don't I have that too? In fact, Gore Vidal has, has said these words, see if they ring true for your heart, said this, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. It's sad, but it's true, isn't it? Like in our sinful flesh, we can't celebrate somebody else's success, somebody else's possessions, somebody else's growth. We look at that and it reminds us of what we lack It causes us to be frustrated and angry, to be covetousness, to envy what they have. And our heart begins to stir, and we can't celebrate it. We resent it. By the way, this problem is as old as the fall of mankind itself. In fact, if you go to the Bible, it doesn't take you very long to see this idea of envy or covetousness. I mean, honestly, you could start right at the beginning with Adam and Eve. I mean, they coveted what they did not have. It was presented to them by Satan that they could too be like God. They longed for what they thought they needed and they did not have, and they reached out and took what wasn't theirs for the taking. But really quickly, we see this fleshed out in the lives of their own children, Cain and Abel, don't we? I mean, you know the story, if you've been in the church running like the time of Cain and Abel, the, the two sons of Adam and Eve, they both come and they present offerings to God, and Abel's offering is accepted by God. Cain, his offering is not. Cain, even against the severe warning of God to guard his own heart, succumbs to his own envy. He looks for what he doesn't have, what his brother did receive, the acceptance and the approval of God himself. And his heart is so bitter and resentful. I mean, even against the clear warning of God that sin was crouching at his door and his desire was to have him, he gave way. And we have, listen, springing from envy and covetousness, the first violent, murderous crime in all of Scripture. It's a sad commentary on the human heart. James even picks up on this idea in, in, in the book of James. He talks about why we fight and quarrel. And, and he links it to this idea of, why do you fight? You do not have, right? So you want, you desire, so you fight, and you're willing even to kill. You see, this is the place that covetousness and envy can often brings up, bring us. The human heart longs for more, for different. It covets, it envies. And the problem is that this is, wholesale in all of humanity. You see, while we're busy envying somebody else and trying to accumulate more, we do so in some sense so that others can look at us and begin to envy us. 
It's been said like this, that the world is full of Joneses trying to keep up with other Joneses. And when our attempts at community are driven by competition, we end up resenting others, not relating to others. You see, at the very root level, envy and covetousness, they do not cultivate community, they kill community. They look at people as objects to be used and abused, not to be enjoyed and cherished. Covetousness and and envy, they kill community because it breeds this self-centered superficiality that is driven not by selfless love, but instead by sinful lusts. In many ways, listen, envy and covetousness is our attempt to prove ourselves, to promote ourselves, and to produce ourselves. Okay, envy is our attempt to prove ourselves, to promote ourselves, and produce ourselves. Let me break that down quickly for you. All of this is related again to identity. Envy and covetousness stem from identity issues. I must, in other words, prove my worth and my value to self and to others. And I do that by accumulating what I believe I should have, what others have, and I don't. And secondly, I must promote myself because my value is so driven by what other people think of me. And if I have what they have, or if I surpass what they've done, then other people will think better of me. And you see, we have to prove ourselves. But in the process, what we're doing is we're the ones trying to produce ourselves. In other words, we believe at the base level that we are fundamentally responsible for creating and crafting our own identity, for, listen, determining our identity instead of discovering our identity. Our identity is not fundamentally rooted in what we make ourselves to be. Yet this is what the world, you know, under the sun, apart from God, pumps at us. You make yourself. You determine who you want to be. You show the world who you are. The Bible tells us something fundamentally different. It tells us that our identity is rooted not in what we do, but in what someone else has done for us. Not in who we've made ourselves to be, but in who God has already made us. And all of this, all of this effort to prove, promote, and produce ourselves is ultimately, in one sense, driven by fear. Fear of being insignificant. Fear of feeling like our life has no purpose and meaning and value. Fear of being unloved or unpopular, whatever it is. By the way, that's at the very heart of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Purpose, meaning, value. Why am I here? Why do I matter? What's the point of all of this? But you see, I want you to get the sense of this here. All of this, this effort, all of this pursuit is so grievous to God. It is an offense against God. You say, is envy and is that really that big of a deal for me to long to, to be like somebody else or, or, or want what they have and, and focus my attention there? The answer to that is absolutely yes. It is an actual offense to God. It, it is, you say, why? Why is this such a big deal? Why is it such an offense to God? Because it is a rejection. Listen, this is so important. It is a rejection of God's good gifts to you you, and ultimately, therefore, a rejection of God himself. That's what envy and covetousness is. It is a rejection of God's good gifts, and therefore, a rejection of God himself. 
You see, in our envy and covetousness, here's what's really happening. We're saying this, whether we realize it or not. We're saying, God, I, I needed that. I need this, Lord, to survive or to be satisfied. I need it, and you never gave it to me. I, I deserve this, God, not them. Why should they have this and not me? God, why aren't you giving me what uh, I deserve? And you see what's happening when we start to think like that and when we behave like that? Who becomes the enemy? God. We've turned our back on God. We've said, God, you're the problem here. You're the problem. What you haven't given me is the problem, God, and that makes you the problem. And it destroys, listen, envy and covetousness is so serious because it destroys our community and, and fellowship with God himself and then, by extension, our relationships and community with others. It's a grievous sin against God that so often perpetuates so many other grievous sins. And he says, listen, if this is how we live, it's vanity. I'm convinced of this, and I'll just maybe challenge you with this. I think that um, envy and covetousness are what Jerry Bridges defines as respectable sins. You know what respectable sins are? They're the sins that don't appear to be that big and that serious, so we never actually think about them or focus on them, and, and they become respectable. They become sins that we deal with and we kind of let slide. They're not that big of a deal, and can I encourage you that envy and covetousness is not a respectable sin. It is a terribly grievous sin before God. Let me ask you this. This is how you can tell. How do I know if I've made this a respectable sin? Let me ask you this. Be honest with yourself right now in this moment. Listen, when was the last time you repented in your heart of envy and covetousness? Isn't it amazing just to think about that for a second? And we, we repent a lot of things, but when was the last time you took a moment and repented of covetousness and envy? Like, allow that to sink in for a second. And if you're sitting here like me going, I honestly can't remember the last time, here's what's happened. You've allowed envy and covetousness to become a respectable sin. So here's what you need to do. You need to allow the Spirit of God to prick your heart. And the first, you say, how do I deal with this? Here's the first thing. You need to confess and repent. Say, God, oh, forgive me, Lord, for coveting and for longing for what I don't have. And, and ultimately, listen, ask God for forgiveness for not appreciating and being thankful for what he has already given to you. See, this text takes us from envy and, and helps us understand the antidote. Look at verse 5 for a second. It says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's kind of a weird statement. So what does that mean? Well, here... The preacher begins to kind of give us two opposite, two extremes. He says, listen, on one, on one end of the spectrum, you have people who are workaholics, and they're driven by envy. They work, 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 because they want more, 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 more. But on the other hand, the, the answer is not to then just kind of go to the other end of the pendulum and just say, well, I'm just not going to work at all. See, envy's not a problem. I'll just be lazy and idle. He says, no, 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 no. No, the, the idol, this is what he's talking about here. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is the lazy person, and he describes this as uh, self-cannibalism. And what he's trying to do is say, listen, listen, there, there's a middle ground here. You got to work, right? Paul says, you don't work, you don't what? You don't eat. Don't eat your own hand. That's not a good substitute. Verse 6, look at what he says. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. You see, he's giving us the answer right here. He says, just give it to me in one word. Okay, here it is. Ready? 
contentment. Contentment. The secret to battling envy in your heart, one of the key secrets to battling envy and covetousness in your heart is to learn the lesson of contentment. And here he describes the content person as the quiet person. You see, that's the person who's not busy, 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 more, 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 work, 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 anxious, 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 fearful, 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 do, do, do. The quiet person is the person who's peaceful and composed. And rather than always striving for more or doing nothing as a replacement, this person learns contentment with what they have been given with what they have. They understand the difference between needs, listen, and wants. And the contrast here is reinforced by the difference between having a, a single handful and having two handfuls. Do you see that? Better is having a, a single handful, he says, a handful, one handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. It's really actually a really profound picture. The person with two handfuls is a two-fisted consumer. Can you get that picture? They're like, gimme, you know, grabbing more, more, more stuff, more money, more advancement. They're always grabbing as much as they can and always grasping for more. And here, listen, that person is a fool. The goal instead is to have one hand full of quietness, contentment, peace, not being driven by the buck, not having a consumeristic and materialistic mentality that forces you to forfeit so many other good things instead of what is better. The goal is to work hard enough, here's here's the point, listen, to have a decent handful of what you need in life. If God so happens to bless you with more, Praise God, but it shouldn't be the pursuit. It shouldn't be the dominating pursuit of your life. This, by the way, contradicts the world's philosophy, doesn't it? He does not keep demanding more this person and more, but instead accepts what God has so graciously given, knows when to call it quits, knows when to invest themselves in things that matter more than having more. He said, well, what happens if I don't? Well, then you sacrifice enjoying true community. That's the point here. You destroy true community, and you never experience what God intends for you to experience in the context of community. You end up, here's the the devastating reality of living life like this, okay? This workaholic, this get more mentality, broken relationships, you end up relationally bankrupt, You destroy every relationship around you. It is not what it was intended to be. And most importantly, you destroy your relationship with God because he's the one you resent most of all. So if you want to enjoy true community, understand this. First, you need to flee the sinful destroyer of community, covetousness, envy. Secondly, you gotta do this. Fear the subtle distancing from community, the loneliness. You've got to fear this. You have to realize that this is something that we can all naturally gravitate towards, a distancing from true community. We settle for superficial community or facades or veneers of community instead of enjoying the true thing. Notice what he says here in verses 7 and 8. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? 
This also is vanity and an unhappy business. You see what happens? Here we're given a picture of a man who forfeits what's most important in life because he has misunderstood what's most important in life. He's given himself over to the pursuit of more things, and he's lost this perspective on what's truly important. He has no friend or family left. Do you see this? This is the relational bankruptcy. There's no one to share in his work, in his success, in his accomplishments. He's got all of this stuff, but for what? This here is a picture of the absence of community. It is a picture, listen, of isolation. It is a picture of the lonely person who has sold his soul to the devil. I wanted more, but I ended up with nothing. Now, isolation, to be fair, is sometimes a byproduct of things that are outside of our control. There are some things that we can't control. We're, we're born into the family or the context that we're in, and sometimes situations are thrust upon us that isolate us. Um, nobody chooses to be typically, uh, at least health-wise, a shut-in on purpose. There's some things that are outside of our control and can isolate us, but I want you to hear this, and what the thrust of this text is telling us is that many uh, of us have self-inflicted isolation, okay? We experience isolation because of our own design, and here we see this even in this own man's life, right? Like he's full of toil. He's never satisfied with his riches. He's a workaholic. He's got, no. listen, I've heard this before, no time for friendship, no time for relationships, no time for his family. I mean, how many times have you heard of people who have grown up in just this, just this kind of context and, and I get this, and maybe this, is, listen, maybe this is for you this morning. Maybe you need to hear this, where you've been saying, I want my children to have a better life than I ever had, right? And so you, you want to work hard to give your children what they never had. You know, you're, you're, you're out the door before your kids wake up in the morning, and you're home while they're tucked in bed at night. And eventually comes the day when your children say, Dad, why, why are you working so much? Why aren't you ever home? And the answer is, listen, I want to give you the life you never had, when really their heart is crying out saying, I don't want a, a better life. I just want you. I don't need more stuff. I need more you. How many people have to get to the end of their lives to learn this lesson? Shattered relationships, absentee parents, caught up in their own pursuits, caught up in the selfish things of this world, never making the investments in the lives of their own children that are necessary. What a fitting topic for a parent-child dedication. How many times have I heard, Pastor, you don't understand, I can't be involved in community, I can't join a small group, I, I can only come to church, you know, a couple times a month, um, I can't really do relationships right now, I'm just so busy. I'm too busy, work, you know, work, blah, 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 okay. Everybody's busy, amen? Like, come on. Everybody's busy. That's, listen, if that's you, that's self-inflicted isolation, I can't join that. My kids have sports. My kids, have... listen to me, listen. It's fine if that's your excuse. Oh, okay, but not. 
self-inflicted isolation where your kids need more. Listen, your kids don't need to be in more programs. Your kids need to see you more invested in the community of God's people, and they need to be invested in the community of God's people. That's what they desperately need. I'm not out on sports, by the way. I'm not out on programs, but listen, I am out on, on this, all this, like this, fill up our life, fill up our kids' schedules, and everything revolves around that, and we're going to make him into the next Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, sorry, new generation. Like, come on. Like, what matters most? It is investing in the community of God's people. Listen, God promised to build one institution, one institution that will outlast every single institution. It will last forever. It is here in the church of Jesus Christ, the redeemed people of God. This is what matters most. How many times are I to hear, oh, it's just a season of life. It's just a season. Let me call, I get it. Seasons of life, some of you are in it. Truly understand that, but can I just say, listen to me. Be careful a season of life doesn't actually become your life. Like, if in five years you're still telling me it's just a season, that's a wake-up call. It's not just a season. The preacher is telling us that there's more important things in life, and he's desperate. Listen, he is desperate that we would hear him. The problem is this kind of person that's being described here is not asking the right questions, the big questions. Like, what am I working for? Why am I always wanting more? Who am I working for? So why do we do this? Listen, one of the main reasons is because we're so self-sufficient. We love to be self-sufficient. We love to be autonomous. We love to make something of ourselves. And this is so dangerous when we get to a place of self-sufficiency. In fact, look at verse 13 for a minute kind of this interesting little story or parable that's tacked onto this whole picture, a, a poor and wise youth in contrast to an old and foolish king. But listen to what it says about this king. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. I mean, there's the definition of self-sufficiency right there. I've got it all figured out. I don't need anybody. I can take care of this. You stay out of my business. You see what made this guy, this old king, so foolish here? He could not take advice. I heard somebody once say that they don't trust anybody over 40. And when asked why not, they said because people over 40 think they know everything. The crazy part was is he was over 40. I'm not going to listen to that then. But there's some truth to this, and listen, if you're older, you need to hear this, and if you're younger, you need to hear this too. Like, to get to a place where you think you've got it all figured out is a very dangerous place to be. Some of you live in isolation because you don't like being told hard things. You're self-sufficient. You've got to figure it figured out. You don't need anybody else. And the reason that some of you are avoiding community and deep relationships is because you don't like being told what you don't want to hear. And when someone has done that, you are so offended, and you tend to do one of three things. You just shut them off. You just, that's enough. I've heard enough. I don't want to hear anymore. Or you tell them off, right? You give them peace of your mind. Oh, yeah, you think I'm bad? Let me tell you a little bit of something about yourself. Talk to some marriages now. Or you cut them off. 
Like, you're not my friend. I don't need you. The book of Proverbs says so much, by the way, about relationships and, and friendships. I'm going to be quoting a few Proverbs here. I, I really feel like I should quote the whole book. In fact, if you want some application from the sermon today, just go home and memorize the whole book of Proverbs, okay? Today, go for it. I mean, it's so good. Seriously, read Proverbs. Watch how much it says about relationship and community and the value and what it's supposed to look like. It is just so rich when it comes to dealing with community. In fact, Proverbs 18.1 says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And it's amazing the kind of excuses we can come up with to not be involved in relationships and community, not deep and meaningful relationships and community, right? Like, I hear stuff all the time, why people can't be in their, their small group or why they don't want to really get into relationships. You know, I don't like those people. They're so different than me. I mean, those people in that small group, they're a little bit weird. Not like me. Listen, you need to embrace this reality when it comes to your relationships, I don't care what relationship it is. It could be with your children. It could be with your spouse right now. It could be in this church. It could be with extended family. Just embrace this principle, and I promise it will go much better for you. Not perfect, but much, much better for you. Here it is. Ready? You might be your own worst community problem. You. Because normally we love to say, oh, they're the problem. They're the problem. It's not the way I want it to be, and they're so different than me. Right? Everybody else is the problem but me. Right? That cliche saying, everybody's weird but me. Okay? We, we, I was thinking about this this morning when we were shaking hands. We ought to just, when we shake hands, you know, we do this little, you know, after the second song generally, we stop, we shake each other's hands and introduce ourselves. We do that because, by the way, we're a community. Like we, we love each other. We want to embrace each other. Some of you are like, well, it's kind of weird. Like, get used to it, okay? This is a part about being in the family of God. But one of the things we ought to do is we ought to introduce, hi, I'm Ian. And just so you know, I'm a little bit weird, okay? Just embrace your weirdness. I mean, you should look, you can turn to the person beside you and just say, hey, um, by the way, I'm a little bit weird. You can do that if you want. Go ahead. It's, it's good. good. It's good for you. Okay, just, I'm a little bit weird. So true. I know lots of you. You're very weird. And by the way, if you don't like being weird, you're not going to like being a Christian. Okay? Because Christians are weird to the world. I mean, we're bizarre. We don't make any What we believe is weird, right? A God who sent his son, who became a man and died on a cross and rose from the grave, that's weird. But it's true. And God brings a whole bunch of weird people together and he calls it his family and a community. So we better start learning to embrace not just our weirdness. We're pretty comfortable with our own weirdness. We gotta embrace other people's weirdness, differentness. Listen, that's the better, uh, more politically correct way of saying it, isn't it? Okay, you're not weird, you're just a little bit different. You're special. <laughs> embrace the weirdness, and acknowledge that you are likely your own worst community problem. I'm not saying other people aren't contributing. But listen, catch this. We long for community, but most of us are unwilling to count the costs that are necessary to cultivate true community. We say that we want it, but we don't want anyone to truly get to know us. I don't want anybody to see my faults and my failures, the warts and the stains and the blemishes. I don't want people to say hard things to me. I don't want to be exhorted. I don't want to be challenged. And I certainly don't want to be rebuked by anybody. 
And so what we do is we settle for pseudo-relationships. Right? We have small groups in churches that never talk about real-life issues. We just like to hang around and have fun. Listen, that is surface-level relationships. That is surface-level Christianity. True Christianity goes deeper. It plumbs the depths of people's lives. It engages with them at a different level. And yet we flee it, we run from it, we're fearful of it in so many ways. If we're honest with ourselves, listen, most of us in this room have many acquaintances, but very few friends. I don't care how many friends Facebook says you have. The reality is that that is a metaphor for the shallowness of most people's friendship. We are actually created for relationships. This is the beauty of the scriptures. It pulls, listen, it confronts us, but then it reminds us and encourages us of what's right and just be reminded of what the scriptures say. We were actually created for relationships, for community. It's God's design. God himself, listen, is community. We're gonna throw the logo up behind me here. Just for some of you, you've maybe forgotten what this represents, but I thought it was a good opportunity just to say, look, this isn't just a cool, abstract-looking piece of art, okay, that we chose as our logo, And I just want to remind you of the theological significance. Yes, it's an R. Some of you are still like, I don't see it. Those white triangles, they turn, see this off a little bit. Okay, so the the big one, listen, there's theological significance here. The big triangle, it's representing our triune God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And listen, that is a reminder for you and I. It ought to be, every time we think of it, listen, that our God lives in eternal community. He lives in eternal fellowship with himself, beautiful, ongoing fellowship. And that little triangle there that's a little bit offset, notice how it's coming under the big one? The idea that that the big one is supreme and we are coming under because he is Lord? But that little triangle, right, as the scriptures remind us, it's made in the image It's reflecting that image of the the God who created us. Now, some of you, you look at that little triangle and like, hey, that's me. That's just me. You are made in the image of God as an individual. Listen, but it's bigger than that. That little triangle right there, it's not just you. It's us. It's the church. It's the community of the redeemed who are called into one family under one king and Lord, and are called to reflect this beautiful relational God to the world around us, to show and to tell the world, listen, that God wants us to live in relationship with him and with one another. Adam was created by God, and he desired companionship and community and fellowship. The very first thing God said, the, the, ba- the worst thing about his creation, if it can be said that way, is that it is not good for man to be alone. He says everything is good, but there's one thing that's not. The first marriage, listen, in Scripture was also the first friendship and the first community. And it was designed to combat loneliness that is so inherent in sinful humanity that isolates itself to its own destruction. The first thing the Bible designates as not good is loneliness. It's even worse than being, by the way, even worse than being separated from other people. 
is being separated and alienated from God. True loneliness that we experience on a human level, on a horizontal level, is a result oftentimes of greater loneliness that is being experienced on a vertical level. We are disconnected from the God who created us and designed us to know and to love Him, to be in relationship with Him. We are estranged from that relationship and that community with God because of our sin. It's broken that relationship. It has distanced us from God. We have violated His commands. We have rebelled against Him. We have said, I will be self-sufficient, God. I will be autonomous. I don't need you. I can do this on my own. And then we feel the brokenness and the emptiness of that pursuit. And while we search for community in a lot of different forms and a lot of different places, none of it, none of it can make up for the community we were designed to experience with the God who created us. And there is no community, listen, like community with God and with his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. So let me just ask you really quickly this morning, do you have true friends? Are you experiencing true community let me ask you this another way, more importantly, are you experiencing in the church? You say, I got friends, I got lots of friends, I have work friends, I got, you know, gym buddies. Do you have true friends in the church? Let me get a little more specific. Do you have true friends in this church? Because this is the local community, the local church that God has placed you in. And this is a place, not the only place, but it is a place where God wants you to experience deepening and increasing relationships If you're not experiencing community the way you're supposed to, perhaps it's time to change, even this morning. Listen, if you're just showing up here on Sundays, like we're glad that you're here, like I really am. If you just show up here every Sunday and you leave, you go out, a, you know, you go out, you jump in your car and then you come back next Sunday. If you're just showing up here once a week, can I just tell you, like you're missing the point. You are. You're missing the point. You're not getting all that God wants you to get here. If you're kind of like on the fringe here and you're kind of involved but not really, you know, you just show up, you do your thing every once in a while, but you're not really involved, no meaningful relationship, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. And I need to ask you, like, why, what's stopping you from getting in? What's stopping you from experiencing the blessings of true community? You see, what God calls us to finally here is to find the sacred delights in community, togetherness. This is what we're after, and this is what the Word of God is calling us to and he highlights here the importance of this here in, in a few ways. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Now if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Here is a just power-packed statement about the blessings and advantages and value of true community and true relationships. This is a passage that's often read at weddings and for good purpose. Listen, a relationship and friendship should be at the foundation of every healthy marriage. Every healthy marriage has to start there. It has to be built upon that foundation. But this is speaking more so, more specifically, to every relationship that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we just understand what's being said here. What exactly are these sacred, these God-given delights and blessings that we find in community? What does the togetherness look like? Here, let me give you um, four of them. The first we see here in the first verse is progress. 
progress. Did you notice what he says there? Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Like, in other words, not only can they just share in the reward together, but there is this progress that's possible when two people join together in a common pursuit. And really, if you just want a statement that's, that's helpful for you, it's, it's this, that the greater the community, the greater the progress. This is important not just for you as an individual, it's important for us as a church. Listen, we're, we're as strong as we are, listen, together. When we're pursuing the same mission together for Jesus Christ, His glory, His honor, making disciples to the praise of His name. But notice what he says too, not just progress, but help. There is a kind of a utilitarian aspect to relationships that we all understand, but woe to, or for, sorry, for verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. I mean, it's just built into the, I mean, it doesn't even take much explanation, right? We understand, right? If you fall by yourself and you hurt yourself, I mean, sometimes you might not be able to pick yourself back up, but if you have somebody with you, isn't that awesome? You have help. Not just practically, listen, church, but spiritually. When you're falling spiritually, when you're slipping into sin, when you're struggling with things in your life spiritually, who is going to be there to help pick you up when you can't pick yourself up? Who's going to be there to make sure you don't spiral out of control or snowball into an oblivion? There is no place in the scriptures for lone wolf Christianity, okay? There's just not. I had a pastor who used to say, you know, a lone wolf is a dead wolf. It's true. Embrace that. We can't do life on our own. We need the help of others. Third thing here, look at verse 11, is comfort. Gives this picture of two people lying down together and staying warm. The picture here isn't sexual in any way. That's not the point of this. So don't let your mind run there. The point is this. Listen, in an ancient world, traveling to a different place, I mean, you know, oftentimes we get caught as the sun went down out and you'd be succumbing to the elements, the cold, the night sky, the darkness, the, the temperature drops. And the point is this, if you had to kind of bunk up on the ground all by yourself, like the chances are you're going to be sitting there shivering, afraid, fearful, lacking in any kind of comfort. And the point here is this, that the comfort that is found not just physically but spiritually, listen, is best found in community amongst friends. We come alongside each other in the dark nights of our lives. We come alongside each other in the cold, brittle moments of life, in the face of adversity and temptation and grief. We're there for each other. And the last thing we see here is protection. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Picture here is of trials. When trials come your way that are overwhelming, that are beyond you, when attacks come your way spiritually, what will you do? How can you survive? You see, having friends and community does not guarantee against tragedy, church. This is really important to understand. It only says that you won't be alone when you face tragedy. Community is God's way of protecting us and sustaining us during times of trouble. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. In some ways, troubles and trials will show you, by the way, who your true friends are. Proverbs 18, 24 says this, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Church, we are stronger together than we are alone. 
that threefold cord that's not easily broken. There is strength in numbers. I mean, the church should have the motto like the military, right? Like the army, no man left behind. I mean, I mean you just think of the picture that's being painted here. Have you ever watched those? Uh, every once in a while, I get sucked into watching like 20 of these in a row and, and waste an hour on YouTube. You know, like when animals attack, like, you know what happens? You just get sucked in. It's like a vortex. Just pulls you like, I got to see one more. I got to just miss one more. But it's interesting, it's almost always the same, right? When you get these kind of big predators attacking the smaller, weaker animals, and times they'll attack herds, and what they'll do is they'll isolate the weaker or the injured, they'll get it off by itself, and that's when they'll attack, right? They'll, they'll, we understand how this works. Listen, that's what Satan wants to do to you. He wants to isolate you from the pack. He wants to get you alone. He wants you weakened by your sin and circumstances, and he wants to devour you. One of my favorite videos that I've seen is when a pack of lions attacks like some water buffalo, you know, these giant huge horns, and they isolate this little calf and they're about to tear into it. And all of a sudden, all these water buffaloes surround the lions. And then all you see is just lions going everywhere and they're flipping them and they're, you know, like just crazy. It's a powerful picture of what the church does for one another. We protect each other. We don't let Satan get in here and have his way, amen? By the way, did you guys, just this is a side note, just popped into my mind. Did you see the, the guy who, who got attacked by a mountain lion on the news like the other day? Did you see that? Somewhere in Canada, I don't remember what it was, but he got this guy. Can you just imagine that for a second? This is crazy. He's walking along in the woods. He's by himself, so it does fit. It's connected. Okay. He's all by himself. He hears rustling in the bushes. He turns, and a mountain lion is charging at him and lunges at his face. Like it latches onto his arm and is mauling him on the ground. This guy wrestles a mountain lion to the ground, and he kills it with his bare hands. Like that's insane. Like, he forever wins the I gotcha story at the dinner party. Like, and some guy in the comments says, oh, well, it was just a juvenile mountain lion. He killed a mountain lion with his bare hands. That is respect. He was alone. Listen, listen, listen. He was alone, and he barely made it through. I guarantee you, next time he goes hiking in the woods, he ain't going alone, Okay? <laughs> Bring a gun, too. We are easy. Woe to him. Did you catch the language here? Woe to him. I mean, this is a devastating warning. Woe to him. We are easy prey when it comes to the attacks of Satan, and we need to be in community to protect ourselves. There's so much that can be said. So much that we can look at here. Listen, we desperately need each other. The fatal flaw, listen, our greatest problem is that we will not see our own sin. Like, it's not just protection from Satan. Can I just, well, we're going to close with this thought. It's protection from ourselves. You're your own worst enemy. Your sinful heart is your own worst enemy. And we need each other to be good friends, to live in community. Listen, listen to what the Word of God says in Proverbs 27, verse 5. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. And then it follows in verse 6. Listen, you should memorize this verse. Commit it to heart. Believe it every time somebody confronts you on sin. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. 
You say, isn't that backwards? That's weird. I thought enemies wound and friends kiss. Listen, so many of us surround ourselves with people who just kiss, 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 kiss. I only want to say what's, what's encouraging and uplifting. And there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. But man, listen, a true friend is a friend who is willing to wound you with truth. I mean, listen, if you're not willing to speak the truth and love to me, if you're not willing to come alongside and point out sin that is destroying my life, listen, I just need to be honest with you. You're not my friend. Not really. You're not a true biblical friend. See, the community of God encourages and builds up, but we're willing to wound, to take the scalpel like a surgeon and press it in because we love one another. The passage ends here with this picture of a king and a poor man. You're kind of like, that's, that's interesting. He describes a poor man who would come after him, and, and it's almost like this old king is fading away. He's become prideful, and a young youth who, uh, I guess the picture is, is, is willing to listen to counsel, rises up in his place. Who is he talking about? Who is this king who comes in his place? There's been a lot of speculation. Maybe it's Joseph. Maybe it's, it's David. You know, they come from this place of poverty. Maybe prison, you know, Joseph. Maybe, maybe it's David. He came from nothing and he grew up in everything. I, I don't think anything's, those things make sense. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure if it's talking about a specific person. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Many scholars listen, believe it's pointing forward to Jesus. And I don't know. I don't want to be overly definitive, but it at least reminds us of what Jesus did, doesn't it? Of who he was. The reminder, listen, that all kings of this earth will long be forgotten one day, but there was one who was born lowly, one who was born humble in a stable, who grew in the wisdom and stature of the Lord. He listened to counsel. He listened to the counsel of his gracious heavenly Father. He obeyed every single word. Jesus, the man born in poverty and obscurity, was exalted to the throne of everlasting glory And now there is no end to all the people that Jesus leads. I was reminded as I thought about this picture, and and it definitely pulls my heart to think about the the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, but how God is redeeming people by the blood of his Son into a community that is supposed to bring great glory to him. And I thought about the future picture of community. Listen, community is something we're going to enjoy, not just here and now, but forever and ever and ever. And it brought my heart and my mind to the throne room of heaven, where one day the community of the saints will be gathered. And just listen to what the word of God says. And and the, the worship team, you can come on up as we close with this thought. Listen, after this, it says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. We are saved first and foremost, listen, to worship God. And I want to invite you to stand with me now as we close our time together thinking about community and what that looks like and what that means. Let us have our hearts pointed towards the future day. 
where as a community of the redeemed, we will gather around the throne in heaven and we will sing. Listen, oftentimes we sing songs with I and me. This song, I want you to focus on the we. This is corporately together. We unite our hearts and we lift our voices to sing praises to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our desire should be together because we are redeemed people together to sing of the greatness of our God. So let us do that together now as we close our morning together.